Thanks, Chris. Well, one time or another, every single one of us has lost something, right? And when something is lost, it doesn't mean it's worthless. It doesn't mean it's not valuable. It simply means that it's out of place, and therefore it's not useful to you. Like uh, the time I lost my four-year-old daughter at a K-State football game. It's very valuable, but out of place. Or about 15 years ago, I lost my wedding ring. And it didn't mean it wasn't valuable. It was very valuable. I searched like a maniac for like two weeks trying to find it because it was valuable. Uh, and then I had to buy a new one. And then I found my original wedding ring as the, the way it works. But this illustrates or uh, clarifies what Scripture means when it says that humanity is lost. If a person is lost, it doesn't mean that person is not valuable. It doesn't mean that person is not worth anything. To the contrary, if you're lost, you are incredibly valuable. You have infinite value because you're created in the image of God. It just means that you are out of place. Primarily, you are out of place in relationship to God, and therefore you are not as useful to God and as usable to God as you could be. We're in the midst of a sermon series on the drama of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We spent two weeks on creation, we spent two weeks on the fall, and at the end of Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve are lost. Because of their rebellion, they are cast out of the garden, and therefore they are out of place. What they should be is in the garden, in safety, in the presence of God. But now they're out of the garden in this very dangerous world, and their descendants multiply sin and evil and violence and deceit and rebellion. And so after the fall, humanity is profoundly lost, profoundly out of place. And at that point in the drama of Scripture, nobody really could have, could have blamed God if he said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with humanity. I'm done with all of creation. But he didn't. In his mercy, God is slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness and truth. In his mercy, he set in place this plan of redemption whereby he would redeem humanity to himself. Since the the corruption of of creation came through the sin of humanity, redemption will focus on on, uh, paying for humanity's sin. He would address our sin and bring all of humanity uh, that, that believe in him back into full fellowship, and he would redeem all things. And so redemption is going to be just as comprehensive as the fall. And so this week and next week, we're going to consider the third act of the drama of Scripture, redemption. And in essence, what God does in redemption is he, he sets out to seek and save that which was lost. And we're probably in a variety of different places here in this room when it comes to being lost or being found. Some of you, when you sing the the song Amazing Grace, you sing it with great confidence and you say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You were lost, but now you know that you are found because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Others of you, when you hear that song, you're like, yeah, me, not so much. I am still out of place. Uh, When it comes to God, I don't even know if I I have a relationship with God. And I'm still dripping with shame. And I'm still wallowing in my own sin. And so if that's you, I would encourage you uh, to pay attention today. As always, pay attention and, and find your place in the drama of Scripture. Understand that what we're talking about this week and next week is God himself seeking 
and saving people just like you. He wants lost people to be found back where they should be in relationship with him. So today I'm going to try and summarize God's plan of redemption as described in the Old Testament. And that's no small task because it's basically three-fourths of the Bible. But that's what I'm going to attempt. Next week we'll discuss more fully how redemption was accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, you may remember from Genesis 3, we found this, this rather cryptic statement that the descendant of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And basically what that means is that even though Satan won the battle in the garden, he would ultimately lose the war. And the plot of the Old Testament revolves around the identity of this descendant of the woman, the identity of this person who would defeat Satan and who would restore God's reign over all of creation. And so the plot of the Bible can be described using a lot of different terms, and we're going to focus just on two terms today. First of all, promise, and secondly, covenant. So beginning in Genesis 12, God makes a series of promises about providing a redeemer, providing a king, providing a Messiah who would restore what was lost through the fall. And in Genesis 12, God promises that this redeemer would be a descendant of Abraham. And so God, God commanded Abram to leave his country, which is basically Babylon. And in the Bible, Babylon symbolizes people living in rebellion against God, Babel, Babylon. Or the Chaldeans was, was there near Babylon. He was to leave his, his, his home, hometown, Ur, and leave his people for a land not yet designated. So in Genesis 12, 1, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And you can imagine Abraham. Okay, I'm going to leave my house. I'm going to leave my parents. I'm going to leave my family, my hometown. Where will I be going? Well, you'll be going to the place that I show you. Okay, so Hebrews 11 will say Abraham did this by faith. It wasn't by sight. He didn't know where he was going, but he trusted God. Verse 2. God begins a series of promises, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so, sh and so you shall be a blessing. And so promising that Abraham, first of all, would be a great nation, that had to seem ludicrous to Abraham. They were this small band of people. They didn't have a country. They were, were surrounded by all these tribes and all these, these other peoples that were mightier than they were. Uh, yet later in Genesis, God would tell Abraham, look up at the heavens, look at the stars, count the stars. That's how numerous your descendants are going to be. In other words, they're going to be innumerable, too, too great to count. God promised I'll make you a great nation. He promised I will bless you, and that blessing will be repeated at strategic points. And again, it would be blessing of a great number of descendants and this promised land. God also promised to make Abram's name great. And this is in contrast. If you're reading Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 11, and all the peoples of the earth, they traveled east, and in the Pentateuch, when people go east, bad things are going to happen. They're, they're sent out of the, out of the, the uh, garden to the east. And in, and in Genesis 11, we, re we read that they went to the east, and they built the Tower of Babel, and they sought to make their own, they sought to make a name for themselves independent of God. 
Here God promises, by contrast, Abraham, I will make your name great, and your greatness, the greatness of your name will be because of your association with me. God promises that Abraham shall be a blessing. He further explains in verse 3, he says this, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He basically said how people treat Abraham that's how I'm going to treat those people. And so you find it throughout the rest of Genesis. When people were kind to Abraham and his, his family, God was kind to them. When people were harsh or they threatened Abraham, even if they didn't know it, like when Abraham told Abimelech, this is my sister, not my wife, and Abimelech took, him into his, took her into his household, God was harsh towards them. And so uh, God would treat people the way they treated Abraham. And then expanding on the promise that Abraham would be a blessing, God declares, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this promise, again, was repeated, and it became more specific as time went by. And so a thousand years later, Abraham's descendants had become uh, a nation. They were the nation of Israel, and they were supposed to be a light to the world. And through the nation of Israel, all the nations were supposed to find out. So that's what a relationship with the one true living God looks like. That's, that's the protection he provides. That's the abundance he provides. That's the richness of life that he provides. And so uh, Isaiah 49, 6, God would say, it's too small a thing that I give you the Messiah just for the tribes of, of Judah. No, I am going to make him, he is going to be a light for the nations so that, sal- so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so God has never given up on this creation mandate to be fruitful and fill the earth with my glory, with my image. And so that's what he promises to do through Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We won't read it, but if you read in verse 4 and following, God begins describing this land that he would give Abraham. And sometimes it's described as the land of Canaan. Uh, Sometimes it's described as this much larger land from the river Euphrates in the uh, the east, or in the east, looking at it from your direction, the river Euphrates, all the way to the river of Egypt. It's this vast expanse of land that God would give them. Now, much like the Garden of Eden, this land, this promised land, would be the place where God would dwell with his people. Uh, As one commentator says, God would now have an address. And so you wanted to find God after creation? Look in the Garden of Eden. He's omnipresent, but that's where he dwelt. The nation of Israel is formed. Now you want to know where God's address is? Look in Jerusalem. More specifically, look in the temple. More specifically, look in the Holy of Holies, and you will find God there. And so this promise to Abraham, it was was repeated at strategic moments. It was repeated to his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, who would be renamed Israel. And throughout Genesis, the fulfillment of this promise is threatened. There are all these threats to this this basic promise. Uh, There was Sarah's infertility. Would they even be able to have a child? Uh, There there were hostile nations surrounding them. Uh, There was Abraham's own disobedience and deceit. There was a famine in the land. And so we wonder, as we read Genesis, is this promise actually going to be fulfilled? But by the time we get to the second book of the Bible, uh, the book of Exodus, we are told... 
that the descendants of Abraham, quote, were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And so this promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or as the grains of sand on the sea, that was coming to pass. But they were in slavery in Egypt. They were not in the land. And so what does God do? God's a God who seeks and saves those who are lost, those who are out of place. Israel was out of place in slavery in Egypt. So he raised up uh, Moses. Moses delivered them from the Pharaoh. They went through the Red Sea. They went through the desert. He raised up Joshua. Joshua led them in battle, and they came back into the land that God had promised. Again, they came in from the east. And so in the Pentateuch, when you go west, that's generally a good thing. And so... God promises Abraham's descendants, uh, they would, he promised them that they would be great and they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. If we fast forward about a thousand years, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised that this descendant of the woman, this descendant of Abraham would also be a descendant of David. We find it in 2 Samuel 7. Now, the children of Israel, originally, they were supposed to live in the land, and God was to be their king. But they, they uh, eventually came to the place where they said, we don't want God as our king. We want a human king. We want to be like all the other nations on, on earth. And uh, the prophet Samuel warned them. He said, you're going to live to regret this one day because kings, well, they do what kings do. They're going to end up oppressing you. But God condescended. God accommodated. And he said, okay, I will give you a king. And the second king of Israel was King David. He was of the tribe of Judah. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David. He basically restates the promise he had made to Abraham, but now in terms that are appropriate for a nation, for a kingdom. And uh, some of what we're going to read here refers to human kings, even disobedient kings, but the core of the promise ultimately refers to Jesus who was the one who would sit on the throne of David forever. So 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12, God says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. If you know the context, David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build him a temple. And God says, nope, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Your descendant, Solomon, he's going to build a temple. But there's going to be another descendant who will build my house, who, who will, who will uh, reign in my house forever. And the plot of the rest of the Old Testament involves the status of the house of David. Would the Davidic kings be faithful to God and be allowed to remain in the land securely? Would they honor God? Would they be a light to the nations? Or uh, would they rebel and be cast out of the land? 
Well, if you read the Old Testament, you know what happens. Just two generations later, 10 of the 12 tribes, the northern tribes, they rebel and they form their own, own country, the nation of Israel. By 586 BC, the northern 10 tribes had been assimilated into Assyria and the two southern tribes had been taken into exile in Babylon, again, to the east. And uh, Israel had neither king nor land. And so it seemed as if the promise had failed. They didn't have a king. They didn't have the land. Uh, there was not a descendant of Abraham, of David, on the throne. So what does God do? He brings back a remnant. And the word remnant refers to a leftover, like a scrap of cloth. He brought back a remnant from exile and resettled them in the land, rebuilt the temple. And the New Testament opens up with the Jewish nation uh, living in Israel, but they're occupied by the Romans. Yet there were still a faithful few who believed the promise made to Abraham that was restated to David. They awaited the Messiah who would deliver them from their enemies and reestablish God's kingdom on earth. And that leads us to Jesus, the Messiah. The very first verse in the New Testament very boldly declares Jesus is the descendant of Abraham. He is the descendant of David. He is the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He is the son of David who would rule forever. Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so there's this narrowing. You have the descendant of the woman, the descendant of Abraham, the, the descendant of David. It's Jesus. He is the one who would crush the serpent's head. He is the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He is the king who would sit on the throne of David forever. For example, in Luke 1, when the angel appeared to Mary, he appeared with this announcement. He, this son who will be born to you, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. That's a direct, a direct uh, fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Or again, in Acts 3, Peter's speaking to the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem, and he teaches that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. It is to you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, with your father saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, the Jewish people, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And so we'll talk more about Jesus next week. But for today, I just want us to see this, this narrowing that takes place. The descendant of the woman, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, Jesus, the Messiah. And what was Jesus' mission? It's stated in a lot of different ways, but in the context of the drama of Scripture, uh, one of the ways to say it is that Jesus is God seeking and saving those who were lost. And so the, Jesus made this statement about Zacchaeus, who was a tax gatherer who turned from his sin and turned to Jesus in faith. In Luke 19, we read, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
And so if you're here today, understand what we're talking about, the drama of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, is God seeking and saving people just like you. Nobody is too far gone. You may, you may say, well, I'm too lost. I'm too far out of place in my life. I have run from God in ways that you can't even imagine. Not true. God can reach anybody, anywhere. Jesus came to seek and save those who are out of place. The promise. Second, let's consider the covenants. And so I'm going to take five or six minutes to summarize one of the most complex topics in all of Scripture. So give me some grace here. And there are numerous ways that scholars understand the covenants and numerous ways they describe the relationship between the covenants. What makes the most sense to me and what I, I have found to be uh, to bring the most clarity is a, a formulation by Thomas McComiskey. He wrote a book called The Covenants of Promise. And the chart in your sermon outline is, uh, reflects that position. But a covenant defines a relationship between two parties. And so when, when a couple stands before God and others and they get married, they're entering, entering the marriage covenant. And that covenant defines the, the relationship between the two, what they are promising to one another. The covenants that explain the plot of the Bible explain the relationship between God and his people. And so the covenants in the top line of that chart stress God's unilateral commitment to seek and save those who are lost. His unilateral commitment to provide a redeemer, a king, a messiah. And there's, there's a response of faith that's implicit in that. If you know God is doing this, you should believe the promise. If, you, if he's promised it, you should believe it and enter into a relationship with him. Be justified by faith. But it's primarily about what God will unilaterally do. And that's what we talked about in the, in the, the promise given to Abraham. McComiskey calls it the promise covenant. And that was God's way of formally committing himself to fulfill the promise. And so the promise came to Abraham in Genesis 12. The covenant that, that guaranteed that promise was found in Genesis 15 and then again in, John, in, in Genesis 17. And so in that covenant, God restated the promise to Abraham to make him a great nation, to multiply his descendants, and to give him the land. A thousand years later, when God spoke to David, he restated the promises made to Abraham, and he promised that David, uh, one of your descendants, will be the one uh, through whom all the families of the earth are blessed, and he will sit on your throne forever. David would look back at that conversation with God and refer to that promise as an everlasting covenant that God made with him. And then as we saw a few minutes ago, the promises to Abraham and David, these covenants were fulfilled uh, in Jesus. Through Jesus, all the families of the earth are blessed. Jesus was the, the king who would reign forever. Through Jesus, all things will be made new. And so that promise was unilateral. God is going to do it. And so you entered into this relationship with God. It's always been by faith. In Romans 4, Paul said it's always been by faith. Abraham believed God. Before there was a covenant, before the law came, long before the law came, uh, he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so people have always experienced the blessing of the promised covenant by faith, not by works. Now, you may be wondering, well, what about the other great covenant that dominates the Old Testament, the law, or what we would now call the, the Old Covenant? 
Well, that's what the second line in the chart addresses, uh, the old and the new covenants. McComiskey refers to them as administrative covenants because they explain how God administered the promised covenant. If you were living in Abraham's day, if you were living in uh, or after Abraham when, when in Moses' day all the way through Malachi, if you were living in that day, how do you live out your obedience if you believe in the, in the promise God made? You follow the law. That's how God administered the promised covenant. And so the law was given to Moses around 1500 BC, and the law gave regulations on every area of life. And so you could not go through your day without thinking about God and your relationship with him. The law stipulated what you could eat, the type of fabrics you could wear, and a hundred other details. The law also laid out an elaborate sacrificial system whereby the blood of animals atoned for sin year after year. And the law described the temple and its various rooms and the furniture there. And so the inner court of the temple was the Holy of Holies. That was the place where God dwelt among his people. To date, that was the most specific address for God. You want to find him, go to Jerusalem, look in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And so God gave the old covenant, the law, to a specific group of people, the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, for a specific period of time. God never intended uh, for the law to be a permanent expression of what obedience looked like. God actually promised that he would replace the old covenant. He said, I will make a, I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And this covenant would accomplish what the old covenant could not. This covenant would provide a type of transformation that would make obedience possible, yea, even inevitable. Why? Because in this covenant, the law would not be an external thing. The law would be written on the human heart. The Holy Spirit would indwell you. He would internalize this, this law that God had, had, had given. And so they were to meditate on it, the law, day and night. In the old covenant, they were to meditate on it and try to internalize In the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would write that law on our hearts. The New Testament very boldly declares that this new covenant was ratified through the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ. He was the once for all sacrifice that paid for our sins. And so all who believe in Jesus go, go from being lost to being found for all eternity. We dwell with God. God dwells with us through the Holy Spirit. And so God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. God dwelt with Israel in the temple. Guess where God dwells now? Guess God's address on planet earth. He lives in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. We are now the temple of God. Individually and as the church, we are the temple of God. And so in the drama of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, Israel, Jesus, fulfillment in Jesus, we are living in, in, in a, a time of fulfillment. We are people of privilege living in days of fulfillment as we come to the Lord's table, it is a time to remember everything that God has done in the drama of Scripture. And uh, it provides an opportunity to remember and celebrate. The bread reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us. The cup reminds us of the new covenant in his blood. And so today we declare through the Lord's table that Jesus still seeks and saves those who are lost. 
And so if you've been found, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, regardless of your church affiliation or denominational background, we would love for you to join in the Lord's table with us. If you came in here today and you would say, you know, I'm lost. I am not a follower of Christ. But if your eyes have been opened and you now understand that Jesus is the fulfillment, that Jesus is the one who died as a sacrifice for your sins, you just admit it. You admit it to God. God, I'm lost. But God, I believe that Jesus paid for my sins. And so I believe. I accept forgiveness. I want your spirit. I want to be found for all eternity. So you, you turn to him in faith. And you too can celebrate with us this morning. I'd like for those who are going to serve the Lord's table to come forward now.